following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 8. I'd like to begin by reading the passage before us in its entirety. And so it's with a great sense of joy and honor that I invite you to hear the God-breathed words of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the, de- the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to begin this morning with a simple spiritual exercise. I'm going to read the opening words of the Bible, and I want you, in your mind, to identify the one attribute of God that seems to stand out to you above all the others. In other words, as I read the opening words of the book of Genesis, I want you to note exactly what it is about God that impresses you the most in terms of his attributes. Ready? Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. When you hear those words, what attribute or distinguishing characteristic of God stands out to you the most? Some of you might say God's creativity. Or God's wisdom. And I think many of you would say God's power. But I would humbly offer what I think is a better and more accurate answer than those. I would argue that the one attribute of God that stands out above all the others in the opening words of the Bible is God's authority. God's authority. We see his creativity and we see his wisdom for sure. And of course, we see his power and we see his might put on display in creation. But ultimately, his power to create is rooted in his authority to create. We see his might to create 
because he has the right to create. He has the right to create what he wants to create because he alone is God. He has the authority to call light into existence by saying, let there be light. John Frame refers to God's authority as one of his lordship attributes. After considering God's sovereignty and his control of all things, Dr. Frame writes, quote, The relation between control and authority is between might and right. Control means that God has the power to direct the whole course of nature and history as he pleases. Authority means that he has the right to do that. Close quote. And so the Bible opens up by calling our attention to God's authority as king and lord of the universe. But not only is God's authority one of the first attributes to confront us in the Old Testament, it's also one of the first attributes that arrests our attention when we open up to the New Testament. The first time Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew, he is issuing a command to John the Baptist. His interaction with Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4 closes with a command to Satan to be gone. And then he emerges, as he emerges onto the public scene, after that, we hear his authoritative call, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After that, as he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, he sees Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew casting a net into the sea, and he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then he calls James and John to follow him as well. And then we come into chapter five, where he delivers his famous sermon on the mount. And what was it that astonished the crowd after that sermon? Matthew tells us. Chapter seven, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament open up on the note of the authority of our triune God. And this morning, as we come to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew wants us, like the crowds at the end of chapter 7, to be amazed and astonished at the power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And really, this theme of Christ's power and authority spans across chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel. Chapters 8 and 9 comprise the first major narrative section within the body of the gospel of Matthew. Chapter 7 ends, as we saw, with the crowds being amazed at his authority. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew focuses on the authority of King Jesus, authority that is seen both in his words and his works. And then the story right in the middle of these chapters, 8 and 9, the story right there centers around the Son of Man's authority on earth to forgive sins, chapter 9, verse 6. And as a result, the witnessing crowd is left afraid and they are left glorifying God, quote, who had given such authority to men. And so although the word authority isn't found in chapter 8 as it relates to Christ, per se. 
It's clearly seen in the various healings and dealings and deliverances that Jesus performs. Matthew wants us to be impressed with the authority of the king. But as we focus on chapter 8 today, Matthew arranges his material in a way that calls the attention of his readers then and now to four aspects of our king's authority, which will serve as our four main focal points for our time together this morning. Matthew wants us to see and know that, number one, our king has authority over disease. Number two, our king has authority over disciples. Number three, he has authority over disaster. And number four, he has authority over demons. And so let's open up by considering first our king and his authority over disease. Verses 1 to 17. Our king has authority over disease. And we're going to see three stories that illustrate this. In a wonderful manner. In verses 1 to 4, he purifies the polluted. In verses 5 through 13, he heals the helpless. And then in verses 14 to 17, he delivers the distressed. And so, as we consider his authority over disease, let's consider verses 1 to 4, where he purifies the polluted. As As the Lord Jesus comes down from the mountain where he was just delivering his sermon on the mount... Crowds are following him again. And behold, Matthew says, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This alone should astonish us, but we miss it 2,000 years after the fact because leprosy in Israel was a serious thing. There were laws in the Pentateuch that were given to lepers and those dealing with lepers. Lepers were suffering. They were those who suffered from a terrible skin disease that would numb the nerves. And so many times people would lose limbs because they would either be, you know, bit by rats at night and they couldn't feel it. And so they'd get bacteria and they'd get gangrene and they'd they'd eventually dissolve and or you'd burn yourself on, on a stove while you're cooking because you can't feel it and you would lose limbs. And it was a serious thing. And so they were considered unclean. The skin would rot away. Many consider what the Bible calls leprosy back then as a form of Hansen's disease today. And I quote, Hansen's disease is the result of infection by microbacterium uh, leprae, which cause unsightly sores on the skin, disease of the upper respiratory tract, and damage to the peripheral nerves, which may cause blindness, crippling of the hands and feet, and paralysis. The disease led to terrible disfigurement with missing limbs and deep scarring. In the 20th century, scholars have often argued that Hansen's disease did not exist until the 5th century AD, and consequently, the leprosy of the Bible could not be Hansen's disease. This view has been clearly mistaken, however, since scientists have now proven that one person buried in Jerusalem in the early 1st century had Hansen's disease. Lepers were commanded to live outside of the camp, away from everybody. They were commanded to live alone. And so eventually there were colonies of lepers and you would see these folks and they were suffering tremendously. And if they ever entered into the public, they were commanded to cry out, unclean, unclean. They were ceremonially 
physically unclean and people were terrified of lepers, Jesus leaves the mountain. Great crowds are there. And for this leper to approach Jesus in the midst of all these crowds was a sign of desperation. It was a sign of urgency. He heard about this one. Reports have gone spreading out about his healings and dealings with the sick at the end of chapter 4. Into the Sermon on the Mount, people are astonished at his authority. And this leper has one thing on his mind. I need to see this man. I need to, I need to touch him. Need, I need to see him. He alone can help me. He's desperate. And notice what happens. He kneels before him. This is an act of worship in the Greek. This is not just a, a, a formal kneeling. This is him prostrating himself. This is him bowing himself to the earth. This is interesting because we see different interactions with Jesus in these chapters. We see some who approach him and uh, uh, beg him to leave, like we're going to see at the end. Some admit their own unworthiness. This guy here, this leper, comes and he throws himself on the ground before the Lord Jesus. And he says, Lord, if you will. He's not presumptuous. He's saying, if you will. If you're willing, you can make me clean. He didn't doubt the ability of Christ's power to heal him. He was just unsure of his willingness. If you will, you can make me clean. You can take away this leprosy. You can make it so that I can live among people again. You can make it so that I don't have to be out there alone. And then when I do come in to get any kind of groceries, having to cry out and humiliate myself over and over again by calling out that there's someone unclean in the midst of everyone. If you will, he's on, the, on, his, on his face on the ground. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And notice the Lord's response. Jesus stretched out his hand, which is ironic language because as we're seeing, we're seeing Jesus again and again as Matthew portrays him, as the new and greater Moses. What was something Moses did repeatedly? As he stretched out his hand, whether it was for wonders, works of God, Jesus, as the new Moses, as it were, stretches out his hand and touched him. Again, Jesus is breaking all the norms here. The fact that he goes out to touch a leprous man, which was strictly forbidden in the Old Testament law, Jesus is God, and Jesus cannot be defiled by our uncleanness. When Jesus touches sinners, he does not become unclean. The sinner becomes clean. When he touches a leper, Jesus does not contract the leprosy. The leper is healed, restored. And the healings that we're going to see is, are, 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 are instantaneous. They're not... Like in the case of Miriam in the Old Testament, you know, prolonged or, or, or the guy who's dunking himself in the Jordan, Naaman, a process. No, this is instant. This is immediate. He says, I will be clean. The same God who says, let there be light, says, be clean. He speaks with authority and it happens. He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, be clean and notice the result. And immediately, verse 3, his leprosy was cleansed, restored instantly. This is amazing. And Jesus said to him, 
See that you say nothing to anyone. Jesus isn't interested right now in gathering more crowds and, 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 and his fame spreading. This is just the beginning of his ministry. There's, there's much more to come. And so he says, see that you tell no one anything. But go, show yourself to the priest. This was the, 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 the command that was given in the law of um, Leviticus chapter 14. It says, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. And it would be the priest to pronounce him clean. But notice that he has already been pronounced clean by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He didn't need a human priest to be like, yep, you're clean. But Jesus is saying, this is your law. Do it. He speaks with authority both in pronouncing him clean and then telling him to go to see the priest. He is our high priest who cleanses us and makes us whole. This is who he is. In the next story, we see that he heals the helpless. He purifies the polluted. He heals the helpless. Look at verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, this was a, a Roman officer over lots of soldiers. This is interesting because, again, Matthew is writing specifically to show Israel that this is her Messiah. But as Matthew has done again and again, he is pointing to the fact that he is not just gathering Israel. In fact, Israel will ultimately reject him. But who is he gathering? He's gathering Gentiles. This is the son of David, Israel's Messiah, who came for his own. And yet, what is he doing here? He's gathering the nations. He, he draws to himself a leper who was probably a Jew. But now, in this next story, he's gathering a Roman centurion, a Gentile, to himself. And this is fascinating because the response of this Gentile should have been the response of every Jew waiting for the consolation of Israel. A centurion comes to him, a man of great power, great authority, great importance. And he comes forward and he appeals to him. This is urgent. He's begging him. Now, some of the other accounts of the other gospels relay that the centurion sent servants. Matthew's point is that this guy was urgent. Whether he came, you know, face to face or had a servant there, um, is really beyond the point. The point is that this man is in control. He approaches Jesus in one way or another, and he's begging. He's, his posture is one of humility, of desperation. And he says, Lord, again, appealing to Christ's deity. The leper called him Lord, knowing that he was able to touch him and be clean. The centurion calls him Lord because he's hearing of all these reports. He knows that he's God. He knows that he can speak a word and his servant at home can be healed. So this is not just an address of respect. This is an acknowledgement of deity. This is an acknowledgement that this man from Nazareth is God in the flesh. And they're astounded. He comes and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, suffering terribly. In the original, this refers to intense, intense agony, terrible agony. The word is used elsewhere to refer to physical torture in the New Testament. 
And it's intensified with an adverb, meaning in the worst way to describe this chronic pain that accompanied this man's paralysis. So not only was he paralyzed, but he was in suffering and anguish and agony. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. So we see again our Lord's willingness to come and approach this man and, and heal him. But the centurion replied, and, and he's just going closer and closer to the dust of the ground. He says again, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy to have you even near my house. You, you know that there were laws in that day that Jews were forbidden entrance into a Gentile's home because the Jew would become unclean and defiled by the Gentile's presence. Jesus says again, going against the norm, I'm going to go to your house. And this man responds, perhaps knowing the laws of the land, says, I'm unworthy to even have you come under my roof. And notice what he says. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Again, Matthew just calling our attention to the authority of Christ's word, the authority of his word. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. And he gives an example. He says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I, I say to one, go, and he goes. And, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so all you have to do is just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Distance is no factor in this. You can just say the word, and he'll be healed. And notice verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, it's as though he's saying, do you guys hear this? Listen to this. And I think he's amazed because this is a Roman Gentile centurion. He says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, and notice what he says, many will come as this centurion. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, as God in the flesh, who has come to gather a people for eternity, from the Jews and from the Gentiles, he is saying that in that final day, in that final feast, in that final day of glory, many will come from east and west. That's a reference to Gentiles, by the way. A reference to Gentiles. Uh, this probably alludes to Psalm 107, verse 3, where God is praised for his steadfast love that has redeemed and, quote, gathered people from the lands, from the east and from the west. Isaiah 59, 19, listen to this. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and they shall fear his glory from the rising of the sun, i.e., the east. Malachi 1:11, the book that closes the Old Testament God promises this, for from the rising of the sun in the east and to its setting in the west, my name will be great among the Gentiles. My name will be great among the nations, for in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations. Now this is fascinating because the people he lists here are all the father's the, 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 the patriarchs, the, the, the fathers of Israel. 
He says, many will come from the east and west, and they'll be there at the table. At the table. That's significant. They're not going to be outside of the, the Jewish home, so, so to speak. They're not going to be out in the outer darkness. They're going to be at the table with your forefathers. And now notice what we read here. Listen to this. Verse 12. After saying that many will come from east and west like the centurion and recline at table, this eschatological feast that Isaiah 25 talks about, where peoples of the earth will be gathered to partake of this feast that God sets before his people with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And notice verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, referring to Jews who reject their Messiah, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He, he, knew, he knows that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born again by God. Jesus says many will come from the east and west and they'll sit with your forefathers while you who reject me will be cast into this place of outer darkness. This is a description of hell. Outer darkness. This is, I mean, all the pictures were given in the Bible of hell. I mean, the fact that Jesus is the one who spoke more about hell than anyone else should tell us something. That the one we know to be love incarnate, grace incarnate, mercy in the flesh, the fact that he came and he spoke more than anyone else on hell shows us the the, the seriousness of this reality. Hell is a place of outer darkness, a place of outer, what Jude calls thick, black darkness. It's a place of not just darkness, it's a place of weeping. It's interesting when you contrast and compare hell with heaven. Heaven is a place of endless joy where you have your tears wiped away. Hell is a place of outer darkness where you don't stop weeping. The misery is in, it seems to intensify with every age of eternity that goes by, as it were. Every era, every day intensifies. And it's a place of gnashing teeth, a picture of intense anger and regret and, and, and frustration. Thinking of all the times that you saw the glory of God in creation and you rejected that God. The, 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 the fingerprints in creation the way the galaxies are held together perfectly, the way our, our, our molecules and atoms are held together perfectly and the, the very evident reality of God and his existence and you rejected that and you tell yourself throughout all eternity, what a fool. And then there's anger at other people and thinking about anger, anger at God for, for throwing you there. What You deserve to be there. And so it's a cyclical reality of anger, 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 frustration, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and yet all the tears in hell, if you think about it, if, if, if there are tears being shed in hell, we're enough to fill up the oceans because hell is eternal. It would eventually fill up the ocean and yet cannot extinguish the fires of God's justice towards his enemies and those who despise his name and his glory and his son. Jesus says, as the centurion has come in faith, you're going to see more and more of that. And there are going to be more at the table in the kingdom. 
while those of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in the Greek, we miss it in the, in the English, there's a definite article before the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the weeping. This is the gnashing of teeth, meaning this causes all the weeping from all the history of the world to pale in, 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 in significance. This is a gnashing of teeth that surpasses everything that human history has seen before. And verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go and notice this authoritative command. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant, Matthew tells us, was healed at that very moment. Healed of this agonizing paralysis. Healed instantly by the authoritative word of the king of kings and lord of lords. He purifies the polluted. He heals the helpless. And notice verses 14 to 17. He delivers the distressed. He delivers the distressed. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening... They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Notice that all this is happening by his authoritative command. He says, be clean, and the leper is cleansed. He, says, he, he tells the centurion that his servant will be healed, and he's healed. And he's casting out demons with a word. Go, be gone, leave, leave them alone. And healed all who were sick. And Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He quotes from Matthew chapter, sorry, uh, Isaiah chapter 53 to signify to his readers that this one who is traveling the towns and authoritatively casting out demons, cleansing people of leprosy, healing people of paralysis and all manner of diseases is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That this one who is bearing illnesses, taking them away from people and burying them for himself will be the one who will die as a substitutionary silent lamb who is led to the slaughter. He will be the one who will satisfy the wrath of God in the place of all who trust in him. This is Matthew's way of telling us this is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is the one who will eventually be crushed for our transgressions. He's the one who will be pierced for our iniquities. Upon him will be the chastisement that will bring us peace and by his wounds we will be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord Yahweh laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. What a load, what a weight, what a burden to carry. And yet he'll bear it He'll suffer, he'll die, and he will rise again triumphantly and he will ascend to the right hand of the Father where he will gather a people from the east and the west and at the end of the age, he will, as our shepherd, he will prepare this table before us after crushing all our enemies and we will be with him for all eternity. This is him. By the way, there's a lot of people who will take this verse and say, look, this justifies that we can claim healings on demand. Because look what Matthew does here. He quotes Isaiah 53. 
He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He, he bore our iniquities. That must mean that Jesus died for our, 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 our sicknesses as well. So therefore, if he died for them and he rose again, that we can, we can claim instant healing. That's not what Matthew's doing here, though. D.A. Carson writes, it should be stated that this discussion cannot be used to justify healing on demand. This text and others clearly teach that there is a healing in the atonement. But similarly, there is the promise of a resurrection body in the atonement, even if believers do not inherit it until the second coming. From the perspective of the New Testament writers, the cross is the basis for all the benefits that accrue to believers. But this does not mean that all such benefits can be secured at the present time on demand any more than we can have the right and power to demand our resurrection bodies. So yeah, did Jesus die for our sicknesses and did he die for your cancer? Yes, he did. But that doesn't mean you're going to, you necessarily guaranteed that freedom from your sickness in this life. You will be healed if you're suffering from cancer as a believer. You will be healed of your paralysis. You will be healed of every ailment on that day when we see him. He bore it all. So it's interesting how in a chapter that begins with Lord, if you're willing, is turned into demanding healing from God by so many prosperity preachers today. The whole context is, is if you're willing, and then I'm unworthy to then, Lord, I demand, claim your healing, claim your restoration. No, the whole context is a humble faith that says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What do we do with sickness? We should pray to be healed, for sure. We should pray for others to be healed, knowing that ultimately, if they're in Christ, they will be healed. They will be restored. It may not be in this present time, but it will be. It will happen. It will come. So we see him purifying the polluted, healing the helpless, and now we see him in these verses delivering the distressed, delivering the distressed, then we move on to verses 18 through 22, where we see that our king not only has authority over disease, but he has authority over disciples, over disciples. And in this, Matthew shows us in the two situations with the scribe coming to him and the other man coming to him, Matthew tells us that Jesus deserves to be trusted unconditionally, that's verses 18 through 20, and he deserves to be treasured Undividedly, verses 21 and 22. But let's look at verses 18 to 20, where Matthew shows us that Jesus deserves to be trusted unconditionally. Unconditionally. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. The other side of the sea, presumably. And a scribe, this is a religious leader, devoted to the study of the scriptures, Devoted to intense study, a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, notice the address compared to the other accounts. Lord, Lord, signifying his deity by both the leper and the centurion, the Gentile. And now we see a Jew coming and saying, Teacher, teacher. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus was an itinerant 
preacher, teacher, rabbi who traveled. He didn't have necessarily a, well, he didn't have a church building. He didn't have that. He didn't, he wasn't, he was constantly on the go. And so he, as a rabbi, traveling rabbi would gather disciples, people would follow him and they'd move from one town to the other constantly. That was three and a half years of that. He would teach from a boat, teach from a mountain, teach from people's houses. And so this scribe comes up and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. If we're going to Capernaum next, I'll go with you. If we're going to the other side of the sea, I'll go with you. I'll go wherever you go. Not a bad desire, right? We should be impressed with his authority to the point where we say, Lord, I will follow you where you lead me. Now, obviously, the relationship that we have to Christ in glory right right now, raised at the right hand of the Father, is different from those who saw him in the flesh. Jesus calls us to follow him, not physically, but spiritually, right? He calls us to follow him by his authoritative word. Where his word says to go, we go. What his word says to do, we do. The scribe understands that this rabbi is on the move. And Jesus, look at verse 20. It seems that our Lord isn't so quick and in a hurry to just gain followers. He says, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He just wants this guy to know that I'm appreciative that you want to follow me, but understand that even the most insignificant creatures on this earth have homes. They have somewhere to return to at the end of the day. After the fox goes and hunts his prey and his food, he has a place to return. And the birds of the air during a storm or during the heat or during a, a, a after they've gathered, you know, for their nests, they have a place to come back and, and, and rest. But I want you to understand that the Son of Man, and this is the first place, the first time in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is fascinating because it calls our attention back to the prophecy of the Son of Man back in Daniel chapter 7. And what do we see in Daniel chapter 7? I want you to turn there with me. Turn to Matt, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Beginning in verse... 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So this is obviously a picture in the Old Testament of Christ being presented before his father. And notice what we read in verse 14. This is so key to this whole narrative. And to him was given What's the first thing? Dominion. Other word? Authority. Sovereignty. Rule. Dominion. And glory. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed 
Jesus understands this prophecy. He knows it's about him. What's the key feature in this prophecy? Authority given to the Son of Man. Jesus says, let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. Jesus says, the Son of Man, at least while I'm on this earth, I have nowhere to lay my head. So understand that it's not going to be a comfortable ride all the time for you disciples. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. Sometimes we're going to have to sleep under a tree, upon rocks. It's going to be different every day. And he wants them to know. And this is helpful for us to know, to, as we go with the command to make disciples, to let them know right up front that the Christian life is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be worth it, though. It's going to be difficult. It's, you might lose friends. You're going to be misunderstood, misrepresented, slandered. You might lose family. But it is so worth it. It is so worth it. So worth it. Look at the next story. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, typically in Israel, you would obviously want to honor your father and mother up until the very end. And so this could mean a number of things. Interpreters are, 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 are in disagreement here. This could mean, which I, I kind of lean towards this position, that the father is close to the end and the disciple here wants to make sure that he's there to help the father through these, these final days, these final months, these final weeks. I want to see to it that I give him a, a proper, honorable burial. That's, that's what he's saying. Or it could mean that, as some have believed, that the father's already dead, and so a year later you would have an official ceremony, an official funeral. I don't think that's the case here. But regardless, the, the disciple, the, the potential disciple, says, let me go first and, and, and take care of things at home with, with my father. I want to make sure that he, he's, he's taken care of to the very end. And Jesus, notice his response. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Only God can say that. A man, a mere man, cannot call you to not follow one of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Lord, Lord I want to honor my father and mother. I want to honor my father and seeing to it that he has a proper honorable burial and God says to him follow me and leave the dead which this, he's referring to spiritual deadness here leave the spiritual dead to deal with those who die physically I mean this is this is one who speaks with authority we listen to him he speaks we listen he says to follow we follow him leave the dead to bury their own dead Again, if he were not God, this would be calling the man to reject one of the Ten Commandments. But as God, he has the right to be able to say, no, it's more important that you honor God, that you honor me than honoring your parents. Leave the dead, leave the spiritually dead, leave them to bury the physical dead. It's interesting because in both of these stories, these two scenarios, Matthew tells us that he deserves to be trusted unconditionally. 
whether we have what we want in following him, like the first scenario, or it's comfortable, or it's miserable, Jesus deserves to be trusted unconditionally. Where you go, I will follow. And in this second story, Matthew is telling us that Jesus deserves to be treasured undividedly, above all human relationships, above all relationships. Jesus deserves to be treasured supremely, undividedly. Well, then as we move on to verses 23 through 27, we see that our king not only has authority over disease and over disciples, but he has authority, thirdly, over disaster, over disaster. Look at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. In verses 23 and 24, we could think of this under the heading of, we do not know what the future holds. But in verses 25 to 27, we know who holds the future. We know who holds the future. His disciples follow him and they get into the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Most likely this was a windstorm, wind but we see that at the end of the, the, the account there in verse 26. Off one of the heights close by this lake here would come all of a sudden bursts of wind and it would kick up fast. That's more than likely what's happening here. The storm arises, the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Now, this speaks to a number of things. It speaks to the fact that our Lord was a man who got tired. I mean, he's been ministering to the crowds. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing people on the move, on the go, constantly, constantly, without a place to lay his head. Well, he finally finds a place to lay his head, right? In the boat. When all of us would have been terrified, and like the disciples were terrified, and he's sleeping. He's sleeping. This is the Lord of nature, the Lord of creation, asleep in his creation. It's, it's amazing. And verse 25, and they went and woke him, and you can hear the desperation in their voice, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. It's fascinating, again, because that phrase, save us, O Lord, translated throughout the Old Testament, is constantly a prayer to Yahweh alone. Save, O Yahweh. Save, O God. Save us, Lord. Again, what, what name of Christ keeps coming back again and again in this chapter? It's, his, it's his, his title of Lord. Lord, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Now, this was no ordinary storm. We read of at least... Earlier, four professional fishermen who are now disciples. Simon, Andrew, James, John. These guys work this lake for a living. They're not terrified of, 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 of the typical storm on, on a typical day. But this storm is unlike any other storm that they've seen. And so these fishermen, I mean, if you're scared of the trade, find another trade, right? I mean, you read of people going and, you know, fishing, you know, in Alaska for a season and they come back terrified. So I'll never do that again. 
but there's people who, 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 who are aware of that. They're familiar with the work until they stay with the work. That's Peter and Andrew and James and John. But this storm was no ordinary storm. These guys are now professional fishermen pleading for Christ to save them. They're about to die. We are perishing. We're on the verge of destruction, Lord. And you can, you can probably see them shaking him, trying to wake him up. Lord, we're perishing and he's asleep. And notice verse 26. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. We know who holds the future. Verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid? This is almost comical. Why are you afraid? He knows why they're afraid. But he says, why are you afraid? Signifying, I'm here. You're with me. I created these waters. I command these winds. They obey me. It's interesting because we read in the Old Testament of God setting boundaries for the seas and God raising up the mountains and sinking the valleys with his word in, in the original creation. And when God says, be, there they are. When God says, you're going to come this far as a border of the ocean and you're not going to go any further and the waves and waters obey, every time we see in the Old Testament the, the, the creation is obeying its creator. The creation is yielding to the will of its sovereign, authoritative king and creator. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Do you not believe that I'm, I, I'm in control here? Do you not believe? Do you not trust that I'm in control of this? And now notice, this is fascinating. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. What are we noticing in all of these stories? The immediacy, the quickness, the instantaneous occurrence of either the healing or now the calming. He says, he rebukes the waves, he rebukes the wind. What's a rebuke? A rebuke is when you contradict the will of something or someone, right? You rebuke someone when they're in error and they're wanting to go one way, you rebuke them and you correct them. Jesus rises up and he rebukes the wind. Be still. Hush. Quiet down. And it's done. I mean, imagine that. Imagine these professional fishermen terrified for their lives. And they go up to their sleeping rabbi and they say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Do something. And he rises up and he says, that's enough. And immediately, there's a great calm, an, an, a, a, an almost unsurreal calm, this, this strange calm, this extraordinary calm on the sea. And it's quiet. The winds have stopped. They're there drenched, dripping. That's probably all they could hear is the drips off their clothing. And notice their response. And the men marveled, marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is this? What kind of man is this? If he can rebuke the wind and it listens that he can rebuke the storm 
and it ceases. This is interesting because all throughout the Old Testament, we read that God alone has the power to do such wonders. Listen to Psalm 65, verse 7. Yahweh stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Listen to Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. That's God. That's God alone who can do that. Psalm 93, 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Psalm 107, verse 29, Yahweh, the Lord, made the storm be still and the ways of the sea were hushed. It's Yahweh alone. And then we see as we come into the New Testament that this Yahweh has come in human flesh. This Yahweh, this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is now here in the flesh. And when a storm arises, he calms it. He rebukes it. And it yields, it submits, it listens because this one has all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. Well, finally, I want you to note that I know a lot of preachers who mean well, and I've probably done this in the past too, and they'll turn this story into something like, as long as you're with Jesus in the boat, you know, there's some storms that are going to arise in your life. Some storms are going to arise at work and in your marriage and in your family and in your parenting and with your friends and you're going to have inner anxiety storms and, and depression storms and you're going to help. But Jesus is able. Now, I'm not doubting Jesus's ability to help you through those trials and to see you through, but that's not the point of this passage. This passage shows us that as God, he rules his creation and he rules the winds. He rules the sea. He rules it all. The point of this passage is not that Jesus is with you in your storms, though that's true. The point of this passage is that Jesus is God and you can trust him. You can throw yourself upon him and rest on the authority of his word and his command. Because when he says be clean, they are cleansed. When he says be healed, the helpless are healed. When he delivers the distressed, they're delivered. And when he says hush, be still, there will be a calm and a peace and a quiet because he alone is God. Our king has authority over disease. Our king has authority over disciples. Our king has authority over disaster. And lastly, we see in verses 28 through 34 that our king has authority over demons. Over demons. I want you to notice first in verse 28, the reality of demons is more real than we realize. More real than we realize. Look at verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. The reality of demons is more real than we realize. We don't see this on a regular basis, do we? Or maybe we do, and we don't recognize it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood as believers. We wrestle against 
spiritual powers in the unseen realm. Sometimes these powers manifest themselves in the lives of people who don't know Christ. And they take control and possession of these vessels. And their point is just pure destruction and bondage and slavery and ruination. And that's exactly what they do here. These two demon-possessed men meet Jesus. We know from other accounts they live in the tombs. This is a dark picture. They live in the place of the dead. That's where they live. That's where they operate. And these guys are so fierce that no one could pass that way. Another account is that in one of the other Gospels is that even chains cannot keep these men restrained. The power that these demons release into these possessed men is extraordinary power. You cannot bind these men. You cannot restrain these men. And obviously no one passes that way. No one could pass that way. In other words, even if they could, they, they, even if they wanted to, they couldn't because it was a guarantee to be destroyed or to be, to be killed, to be abused, to be assaulted. And so that's the scene. These two demon-possessed men meet Jesus out of the tombs. So often we lose sight of the supernatural unseen realm that the Bible portrays to us because we're so fixated on the material world. We're so thinking about what we can see and what we, what we can touch and what we can hear. But there's a whole realm that the Bible presents to us that is unseen and it is dangerous. And it's serious. Well, notice... In verse 29, we learn that the reign of demons is more temporary than we realize. Look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The reality is more real than we realize. Their reign is more temporary than we often realize. We think of demons existing... In, in a reigning form throughout eternity, right? We have the pictures of Satan in hell and the demons in hell just tormenting people in hell. That's not the picture. They will not be reigning in hell. There is a time coming and they acknowledge that to Jesus here. Have you come to torment us before the time? And they know, they know who he is. He has been called Lord, 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 teacher, son of man. And now Matthew presents us with the fact that he is the son of God and those who know him probably the best. This unseen realm acknowledged that he is the son of God. What have you to do with us? They knew. I mean, he's going to be accused eventually of being the Lord of demons in the sense that you're you're healing these people. You're performing these signs as the prince of demons. And they acknowledge uh, we have no dealings with him. He is light. They are darkness. He is pure. They are impure. They are unclean spirits. What have you to do with us? Why are you here? Have you come to torment us before the time? You see, demons know their time is short. They know their reign is temporary. They know their ability to oppress and possess is short. We read in Revelation chapter 12, we have this picture of Satan being cast down to earth in a rage, in fury, because he knows his time is short. He will be subdued. He will no longer have the, 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 the freedoms he has right now. 
he will be subdued under the authority of Christ. But that time is not yet. Well, notice as we move on, we see that the reality of demons is more real than we realize. The reign of demons is more temporary than we realize. But then in verse 30 and 31, we see that the realm of demons is more terrified than we realize. Notice the tone here. Now, a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. Unclean animals, according to Jews. And the demons begged him. Notice the posture. Notice the relationship between the demons and Jesus. They are begging him. Which tells me that they are more terrified than we realize. We, see, we, we tend to think that they're, they're, they're like God's equals up here. And that, that sometimes they're just not afraid of God. They are terrified. Otherwise, you don't beg someone to do something. You know that this one has the authority. You know this one has the power. You know this one is just and right and will ultimately conquer evil. And so what are they doing? They are begging to be, well, notice, they begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. They know that they can't do anything apart from the authority of Christ. And they are terrified and they are begging. Is this the time you've come to torment us? Well, if you cast us out, send us away into the pigs. Well, as we come to the end of the account now, we turn our attention to verse 32, 33, and 34. And in verse 32, we learn that the word of Jesus is more powerful than we realize. The word of Jesus is more powerful than we realize. Look at verse 32. And he said to them, go. So they came out. And went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The entire herd destroyed. Their whole purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, even as their master has come to steal and kill and destroy. They go into these unclean animals, and this, in this act of mass suicide, go down this steep bank into the water, and they drown. The word of Jesus is more powerful than we realize. He says, go, and they go. They depart. Over and over and over again, we are being confronted with the authority of this king and his word. This king and his word. All he does is speak, and it happens. And as we come to the conclusion here in verses 34, 30, 33 and 34, we see one final thing. If the word of Jesus is more powerful than we realize, we see in verses 33 and 34 that the worth of Jesus is more precious than we realize. Matthew comes to a close. He says, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. Notice that what immediately struck these guys was not the act of mass suicide on the part of these pigs. Matthew says that what, was in, what they were impressed with the most as they were relaying all of this to the townspeople was the liberating of these demon-possessed men. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I saw something like this, I think I'd be kind of impressed with all of these pigs being just in, in uniform fashion, just running together, rushing toward the waters. I mean, that's a, that, 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 that's a crazy thing you'd see like, 
on, on, on social media like, look at this. Look at this. No, they're telling what amazed them the most. This tells me and should tell us that the fierceness of these demons was so well known to the people that to see them now in another account sane in their right mind sitting like tame little kitties at the feet of Christ. That was astonishing. To see these men who were known for their destructive tendencies, their ability, the fact that you could not restrain them and now they're sane at the feet of Christ. That's amazing. And now notice, this, these verses tell us that the worth of Jesus is more precious than we realize because look at the last verse. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. You can imagine the shock and the awe and the confusion and the wonder and the bewilderment and all the emotions rushing through the veins of these townspeople. They come out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, all the other accounts so far have told us what? He is worthy of your worship of you being thrown down at his feet, of acknowledging your unworthiness. He's worthy of our trust, unconditional trust. He is worthy of undivided loyalty and devotion, being treasured. And now notice this response. They begged him to leave their region. They begged him to leave their region. They were urgently crying out, you need to leave, get out of here. Go, 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 get out. This is urgent, pleading. Get out of here, go. Man, that's intense. Begging him to leave. They had no, no awareness of his worth, or maybe they did, but they hated him. They hated the light. Why do people reject the light? John 3 says, because they hate the light and don't want to come into the light. They can't deny What just happened? They had been told that emphasis on the one who came to report all of this was on how he tamed and and, uh, released and liberated these demon-possessed men. And they beg him to leave. They beg him to leave. Amazing. As we come to a close this morning... This passage continually draws us to the realization that our response to the authority and power of Christ should be one of humble faith before him. Like the leper, we come desperately trusting in his willingness to save us. That is good news this morning. We don't have to say, Lord, if you are willing, you can save me. If you are willing, save me. All who come to him will by no, in, no, in no way be cast out. He is willing to save. Are you willing to cry out for salvation? Are you willing to be free from your sin and your bondage? Are you willing to be cleansed from your impurity before God? Good news is this, this morning, if you come to him, he is willing to receive you. He is willing to make you new. He is willing to give you victory and liberate you from the bondage of sin and death. Like the centurion, we are taught that we are to come to him in humble recognition of our utter unworthiness. 
And then unlike the potential disciples that we read about, we come to Jesus to follow him with unreserved trust and undivided loyalty. We are taught in this chapter that unlike the disciples in the boat, we come to him as God, trusting in him as God. And we learn lastly, unlike the foolish Gadarenes who begged Jesus to leave, that the proper response, on the contrary, is to beg him not to leave us, to beg him to receive us, to beg him not to make us leave. That's the faith this chapter is calling us to. If you're without Christ this morning, I want you to understand something very important, that everyone in this world is submitted to authority. Everyone submits to some kind of authority. And I ask you this morning, who are you submitted to? Whose authority, whose word do you hear and do you heed above all? Oftentimes, it's your own word, the word of this world. The world says, be this way, and you listen. The world says, chase after that, and you obey. Everyone is submitted to some kind of authority. It's either the authority of the king or the authority of some aspect of his creation, a created being, a created thing. And so I ask you this morning, do you see and savor the authority of King Jesus? Because the day is coming, mark my words, and I hope that you don't have to mark these words and that you don't look back on this moment on the day of judgment with intense remorse and regret, but one day is coming when you will acknowledge and you will understand and admit that Christ's is the greatness and his is the power and his is the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is his. His is the kingdom. He is exalted as head above all. You will acknowledge it, but it will be too late on that day joyfully receive and submit to his authority now and find rest for your soul. He calls you to come to him. And as Christians, I want you to understand this morning that the faith that most pleases our king is a humble, dependent, childlike faith that just takes him at his word, his authoritative, reigning, ruling word. That's what pleases him. And so that's what we should continue to cultivate in our hearts. Lord, you say it, it's done. You say it, that's how it shall be. It tells us also, lastly, that we should go forth from this place as disciple makers. We should go forth from this place speaking with authority. In other words, the gospel we preach should be preached and delivered and shared and talked about with a sense of authority. Now that I know what you're thinking, that I'm not calling you to go out and be rude and arrogant. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a way to be gentle and loving and kind and gracious and understanding while still speaking authoritatively. Give me an example. Well, we don't go forth from this place saying, you know, I, 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 would, just, I would just encourage you to, to, to repent of your sin and, and trust in Jesus. Or, or like I was driving to town the other day and I saw a church sign that said, try Jesus. And I asked my son, I said, what's wrong with that? We had a good discussion after that. We don't go into the world aimlessly. We go with the very authority of the king behind us. We're confronted with his authority in these chapters, but at the end of Matthew, he is going to say, 
All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We go forth not by inviting people, or, or I just encourage you, to give Jesus a try, or, or encourage you to turn to the Lord and turn away from your sin, we can lovingly say, you are commanded by God to turn from your ways and to trust in the Savior. Let us go forth with the authority of Christ resting upon our shoulders and radiating from our hearts.